Good morning, saints. How's everybody today? Let's go ahead and stand back up. Some of you are standing already. If uh, the rest of you that are able and willing would join us, we're just going to pray quickly and then we'll get into uh, the message this morning. How's everybody feeling? So, Lord, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for all that you are and all that you bring into our lives. And I just ask, Father, for an anointing this morning to help me to minister your truth. Pray that every person that's in here will be blessed and impacted in Jesus' name. Amen. Roseanne, I'm hearing a bunch of echo. Is that just me hearing it because I'm in a different spot? Huh? Are the monitors on? No? Okay. I trust that it'll sort itself out. Sounds okay? Sound all right to you guys out there? I can switch microphones too. My microphone broke last Sunday, so had to kind of piece it back together. So <laughs> good to see everybody. I want to uh, do something this morning. You see the chairs up here. I want to talk about the gospel, and the title of my message for this morning is The, the Good News Just Got Better. Now, the word gospel is a old English word that um, actually comes from a word where we would get God spell. Some of you might remember, some of you are old enough to remember the uh, musical, right, from the, whatever decade that was. Uh, but anyway, I want to look at two different presentations of, of the gospel. And while we're on decades, uh, for those of you that don't know, I uh, got radically saved at a very young, well, what I would consider a young age. I'm still a young age, but it's been a couple decades plus since that happened. <laughs> but uh, anyway, you know, I, I came from a, uh, uh, in all of you, most of you in here knew my parents uh, before they passed on. And, uh, you know, my dad definitely had his own struggles uh, throughout his life. And one of his struggles, he, uh, my dad uh, is a Tomlinson, obviously, and his Mother was a green. So you had a green and a Tomlinson. You had the Irish and the Scotch get together. Uh, and I understand which, Laurie, which great grandma is it that's Prussian? Yeah, so there was a little bit of Prussian thrown in there, which is kind of in the Poland, Germany area of Europe. And so you have a little bit of Polish. They, they like to drink a little bit, I think, too. And, and, and I think Germans might be known as much as the Irish and the Scotch for their ability to, to handle alcohol. And so my dad liked to tie a few on. And, uh, and my dad, you know, he's a different generation. So he was very much a, uh, a dictator uh, in the house. And the worst, like the nightmare of all nightmares would be when dad decided that it was time for a home project. Because when, when, when my dad was, uh, young, younger, he had polio and, uh, that left him, uh, with his left hand, uh, semi sort of paralyzed or crippled. So my dad was very, um, had a very good mind for just about anything. He could do just about anything, plumbing, electrical, uh, woodworking, carpentry, you name it, dad could do it. The only thing was, was my dad was very unconventional in how he did things, right? Uh, I had a friend, I don't know how many of you remember the show MacGyver, but I had a friend that used to call my dad MacGyver because he could figure out how to make uh, the dishwasher work with a wrapper of chewing gum, uh, <laughs> keeping the electrical connection together or something like this. But 
But at any rate, it made my dad unique. But the problem was my dad had only one good hand, which was his right hand. And so sometimes when he would go to do stuff, he would need another hand. And I don't know what he did for the first 20, uh, maybe even the first 30 years of his life. But as soon as I'm sure Laurie was old enough to hold a nail, uh, he found his other hand. <laughs> it was time to do a project. And so... Yeah, and so I remember being my dad's other hand holding the nail while my dad was getting ready to hammer the nail. And, and I remember, I don't know why, you know, we, we, I grew up, uh, you know, grew up around working folks, right? And so it was very common to find guys that had black thumbnails. And I'd be like, how'd they get that black thumbnail? Oh, they hit it with a hammer. That looks like it hurts. Oh, yeah, it hurt like a, you know, fill in, put, pick your expletive. Um <laughs> and so here I am, six years old, and I'm holding the nail for my dad while my dad is pounding the nail in because, you know, I'm the other hand. But but that wasn't the worst part. The worst part would be when dad would ask you to go get a tool. Because it was never, he, he could never, like my dad was a little limited on the English language as well. And so everything was a thingamajig. <laughs> and I just, I mean, I've had therapy over this because... It's this really big guy, and it's like, go get the thingamajig. And I'm like five years old, and I'm like, it's out in the shop. It's a little square thing with a round top. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and you go, and my dad wasn't the most patient person. And so you go back, you, you, you go into the garage, and like my dad, the end of his life, everything was organized, right? Because my dad wasn't working. He was retired. But when my dad was working 60, 70 hours a week, whatever he was doing, it was not like that. You, you go into my dad's shop, it's like a tornado blew through the thing. And, and you find like 55 things that are little square thingamajigs with a round. And you're just like you're panicking because you know you're going to bring him the wrong thing. But you grab something anyway and you go running back in the house and you show it to him. And lo and behold, it wasn't the right thing. And then my dad's ticked. And, and my dad was old school. So when, 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 when my dad got mad, it was either a cowboy boot, uh, c- coming across you. They can't arrest him now. He's, God rest his soul. Um, I'm not sure what the statute of limitations is on child abuse anyway, but, um, or he would throw the, the, the nearest thing at you, be it whatever it might be. Um, so anyway, and, and then my, you, you add to that to some of the alcohol problems that, that my dad had. And so I didn't necessarily grow up on the, <laughs> grow up in the most nurturing uh, of environments. And, and, and my dad was very much a, a dictator. And my dad at times was, was very imp- unpredictable and, and he, was, he was angry. But one thing I can say for my dad was you, that you knew that our, our dad loved us. And, and really, when it comes to um, him and my mom... I would definitely say that my dad was more the encourager as well, um, more of the nurturer, more of the encourager. So, so you got a little bit of both. It was kind of a mixed bag. And, uh, <clears throat> and so I was used to this father figure that was a little bit unpredictable, that sometimes made you feel really good, but if you made a mistake, there was anger and there was punishment that came along with it, Right? So when I was 18 years old and I began to hear about God in from an evangelical perspective, and let me just say I thank God for my evangelical perspective because it got me to where I am today. It got me interested in God, introduced me to God, the whole thing. And so I heard a certain version of the gospel that fit kind of with the home that I grew up in. <laughs> so it made sense to me, right? <laughs> and then as, as, as time has progressed... 
my view has grown and changed a little bit. And I used to think when I was younger, you know, the truth is the truth and that's it. But the older I get, the more I realize um, that our perspectives change. Can can yeah, right. And 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 the more I've met people who are real experts, you know, not the kind that sit at the coffee uh, shop uh, on Monday after a football game that know exactly what play the coach should have called in just the right situation. I'm not talking about those kind of experts. I'm talking about people who are really experts in their field. And one of the things that you find out from people who are experts in their field is that the more they know, the more they realize, the less they know. <laughs> And so actually the, the a true expert doesn't try to impress you with everything they know. They are overwhelmed by what they don't know. <laughs> That's just the truth. Because the more you find out, the more you discover there's more to know. It's, it's never any quest, right? And so our beliefs can shift and change. That doesn't mean that God has shifted and changed. So I want to talk to you about God. What is the nature and character of God like? So let me just pull up a couple of uh, Bible verses really fast. And darn it if I didn't write down the first one that I need. All right, so I don't have the Bible reference. That's terrible. How does that happen on Easter? Like you think I'd be prepared. All right, let's just, this is self-evident, right? We all know the Bible says God is just. Can everybody pretty much agree with that? And if you don't, you don't agree with that, there is some intuitive sense that our creator, the creator of the universe, the one who, who holds all of creation, uh, together and makes everything work, that, that there is a sense of justice in the heart of God. And the scripture I was going to look at is somewhere in Psalms. It talks about righteousness and justice being the foundation of God's throne. So if it's the foundation of his throne, then it is essential to his rulership over his creation and over us as his creation. Can we agree with that? And so then the question becomes, what kind of justice does God have? And whether you realize it or not, all of us are bringing our presuppositions, the ideas that we have about what things are, the way the world works, what certain words mean. We bring all of that to the text when we read the text. And so when we read that justice is a foundation of God's throne, we insert our ideas of what justice is. And in the American culture, justice, in my house, certainly, justice was built on what we would call a retributive model. A retributive, or to retribute. You realize the old word tribute meant to pay, right? So when we're talking about retribution or retributing or retributive justice, we're talking about paying back. Anybody ever wanted to pay somebody back? You know, it's church, it's Easter. You, okay, one hand went up. The rest of y'all are liars. You are such liars. Oh my goodness. But that's okay, it is Easter. So we're all in our Easter best, right? Inside and outside. So retributive justice looks like this. It says this, those who commit certain kinds of wrongful acts or deeds deserve to be punished. That's the first principle. Second principle of retributive justice is this. It's morally good for some legitimate punisher to give the wrongdoer the punishment that they deserve. Yes? Okay, we're even getting clapping. I think it's the same person that raised their hand. Third principle, it is not right if someone is punished for what they did not do or punished too severely for minor offenses. Does that, does that seem 
familiar to you. It should, because that's the entire basis of our judicial system in America and the foundation of many of our child-rearing programs, at least when I was being raised. Many share, so, so most people, or a lot of people, share an intuition that those who commit wrongful acts, uh, especially serious crimes, should be punished, even if punishing them produces no other good. So, gosh, it's Easter and you all look so nice. I don't want to make you dirty with this, but can I give you an example? Let's just take a, a rapist, for example. Is that okay? The, the, the serious crime, right? They need to be they need to be punished. And so and so here's a rapist who serves out his time in prison, some of it, and he gets to a point where, um, oh gosh, this worked a lot better when I was running it through. When I was practicing it, I wasn't looking at all your beautiful faces, but stuff didn't work anymore. Uh, physically. <laughs> Got it? <laughs> He's older. And, and, and so the threat that he would pose to society is, is reduced greatly. And so let's just say, and, and, and he's able to, um, let's say he came from a, he's a trust fund family guy and so finances are not a problem for him so he's not going to be stealing or doing anything that's going to cause problems for anybody and so the government just decides well he's no longer a threat to society so we're just going to we're just going to send him to a, a desert island somewhere to a, or to a, a, a paradise island somewhere where he can live out the rest of his life and pursue his interests and and drink piña coladas on the beach and just enjoy whatever was left in his trust fund now here's my point. You've mitigated everything uh, that you can. You've eliminated everything that you can that says that he's still a threat to society. So if keeping him locked up was protecting society, it's serving a good. Do you see what I'm saying? But now it's no longer serving that good. And and yet, intuitively, there's something inside of us that says, no, he needs to be punished still for what he did. Do you, do you see the point I'm trying to make? So here's the key point of retributive justice. That punishment is dealt out for the sake of punishment. And even when it no longer serves anybody's good, there's still a sense that there needs to be punishment in order to balance the scales of justice. Does that make sense to you? There's another uh, form of justice that we can talk about that is gaining some traction, particularly in our school system. And I think they have some interesting ideas. I don't know how you would implement them. It would, it would require a complete transformation of our justice system. But the idea is called restorative justice. Has anybody ever heard of restorative justice? So restorative justice, let me give you three principles of that. When wrong is committed, the focus is upon the harm that's been done to the people who were the victims. See, under retributive justice, it's payback. You did a crime. We kind of forget about the victim. We focus on the crime that's been committed and think you need to be punished for the crime that you committed. So the focus in retributive justice is upon the wrongdoer. 
When you come over to restorative justice, it's different because it looks at what harm has been done and what wrong has been done to the person to whom the crime was or upon whom the crime was inflicted and what can be done in order to restore, that's why it's called restorative justice, restore to the victim whatever needs to happen. So theft is an easy one, right? So if you if somebody gets something stolen from them, right, then uh, retributive justice would be this person needs to be punished for stealing, but there would be no uh, sense of retro uh, of uh, restoration or restitution, right? And even in the case where restitution is implemented in a legal trial, oftentimes it's part of the punishment that the person's getting. So the focus is on the punishment, not so much on the restoration to the victim. Does it make sense to you? The second principle of restorative justice is this. When, when harm has been done, it creates obligations and it creates liabilities. Now, you can do this even to yourself. Anybody ever had a guilty conscience? Anybody ever gotten angry and said something that they wished they hadn't said that did damage to a relationship? And then you come back later and rather than restoring the relationship, you, you, you beat up on yourself, Right? So, or you feel obligated to that person. You're, you're nicer to that person than you need to be because you feel bad for the bad thing that you did. Right? So it's leaving obligations. Do you get it? Uh, uh, even internally, even with what we do to ourselves. We're not as whole as we were before that happened. Make sense? And then the third thing is, is that the way forward is not about punishing the perpetrator so much as it is uh, trying to, uh, the, the way forward involves both the wrongdoers and the victims and the communities in efforts to hold the wrongdoer accountable, but bring healing and restoration to the victim. Or you could say that this is the kind of justice that really puts things right. It has, it has a goal and it has a termination point. When everything has been put right, then justice has been served and there's no longer a need for justice to continue on because things have been restored or they have been made right. They've been set to rights, as you would say if you were British. Make sense? So when we look at God, we can see God and we have to ask ourselves, which form of justice is the foundation of God's throne? Is it retributive justice? Is it punishment for punishment's own sake? Or is it restorative justice that sets things right? Or is it a little bit of both? And so as good evangelical Christians, good Bible-believing Christians, good Pentecostals, whatever, you you might be, where, where do you go to look for your answers? Where do you go to look for your answers about God as a Christian? In the Bible, right? So the Bible, surely the Bible is going to help us with this, right? So can we find retributive justice in the Bible? You bet we can. In Deuteronomy 28, I'll just give you the address. In Deuteronomy 28, God tells Israel, He says, listen, if you obey the commandments that I command you today, you do everything right that I'm telling you to do, I'm going to bring you into the promised land and I am going to bless you. You're going to be the head and not the tail, above only and not beneath, the lender, not the borrower. The blessings of God are going to come on you and overtake you. Rah, rah, rah. Right, and we preach that that preaches good in church, right? And 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 that's fourteen verses in the book of Deuteronomy. But there's something like like sixty eight verses in the book of Deuteronomy, and the rest of the verses in the book of Deuteronomy are this: If you do not obey 
the commandments of the Lord your God, to do what is right in His sight, then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And, and the same thing's just reversed. You know, when, when we're on the, when we've been good and we've done right, then we're blessed in the city, blessed in the field, blessed in our basket, in our storehouse. But boy, if we mess up, we are cursed in the city. We are cursed coming in, cursed going out, cursed in the city, cursed in the field, cursed in our basket, cursed in our storehouse. And God even goes on later in Deuteronomy and He says, And I will take great pleasure, as much pleasure as it gave me to bless you over here for doing good, I'm going to take just as much pleasure in, in putting it to you when you did bad. So that sounds like retributive justice, isn't it? That's just punishment for its own sake. Right? Well, did you know you can also find restorative justice in the Bible? In fact, you can find in the Old Testament, because this is what I was taught, and I'm going to do a gospel presentation using chairs to kind of illustrate what I was taught. I was taught that, that that mean, nasty God of the Old Testament, that was before Christ. That was before the cross. And God was just mad and angry at humanity, and it took the blood of Jesus for God to be able to forgive and still be just. Right? Except we got a problem with that because <laughs> David says in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. This is centuries before the cross. This is centuries before Jesus. He says, Who forgives all your iniquities and heals all of your diseases. Who redeems your life from destruction. Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteous and justice for all who are oppressed. Meaning He's looking at the victim. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious. This is David talking about the Old Testament God. That mean Judaism God. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His mercy towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. That's not retributive justice. Wait a minute. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, Hosea comes along and he says, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Other places in scripture, God describes justice as taking care of the widow, taking care of the poor, taking care of the orphan, focused on those who have suffered because of the economic structures of nations. And he says, look, that's unjust. Not that we need to punish those that are doing well, but those that are doing well, if there's going to be justice, need to look at those who aren't so that things are set to rights. So you have them both. So does the Bible contradict itself? Okay, y'all are, have been taught to say no, but I'm going to tell you, you're, you're, you're lying to yourself. Because <laughs> I just pointed some out to you. See, that causes us a real problem as evangelicals if we say the Bible contradicts ourselves because we don't understand that what's happening in the Scripture is a progressive revelation or unveiling of who God is. 
And the whole purpose of Israel was not just to set the stage for Jesus. It was for us to be able to have the opportunity through their stories to walk through and see how they processed their own ideas about God so that what you see when you stand back and you look at the bigger picture, you see Israel as an infant getting the the, the law, the Torah, and you see them growing and maturing in their relationship with God in very much the same way that we're supposed to grow and mature in our relationship with God. Because you see, when you're a small child, pretty much all you can understand sometimes is if you don't do that, I'm going to spank you. And if you're Josiah, my son, you don't even understand that. I asked me the other day, he did something as a minor offense, and I said, Josiah, what, what do you think we should do to you for that? And he says, have no screen time for ten weeks. <laughs> no screen time. So screen time is YouTube, Minecraft, whatever, on the screens. No screen time for 10 weeks. And the thing is, is he'd happily endure no screen time for 10 weeks. I, I still haven't found a punishment. That, that, anyway, I'm sorry. I thought I was at my group therapy class there for a minute. But I'm saying, as a small child, that's what you understand, is you understand punitive justice. But as you grow and as you mature, the, and as God does something in your heart, your heart should turn. Your heart should turn towards... Uh, in a sense of compassion, in a sense of mercy, in a sense of love, your heart begins to turn towards the oppressed. Your heart begins to turn towards uh, those who are suffering and, and hurting. So that when Jesus comes along, so, so that what you see is you see this progressive revelation. You see, you see Israel uh, in a time period in an ancient Near East where everything was warfare and everything was tribal and everybody had their tribal gods and God comes and introduces himself as a tribal god. And that tribal God is is into punitive works because that's how gods were understood in that age. But as Israel grows and wrestles with God and the centuries go by, pretty soon you have David, the man after God's own heart. And he says, wait a minute, God's not like what we were reading in Deuteronomy 28. God, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within, within me. Uh, forget none of his benefits. He's forgiven our iniquities. He, he doesn't treat us as our iniquities deserve. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Because remember, when we talk about about the good news we're talking about what is the essential nature of God what is the foundation of his throne then even later on you have Hosea coming along as a prophet and Isaiah and other prophets saying no righteousness is not about punishment righteousness is about restoration and so Jesus, when Jesus comes, uh, the, the, where uh, Christian tradition is that God wanted to reveal Himself as He was, and so He took on flesh and became like, and, and showed us who He was in the person of Christ. It, it was, it was sort of like um, Moses had had his description of who God was, but it was incomplete. And David has his, his description of who God is, but it's incomplete. And Hosea and Isaiah and all these guys come along, and they give voice to what they think God's like, but it's incomplete. And then in the Gospel of John, we're told that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so God has His say on what He's really like. So if you want to know what God's like, you look to the person of Jesus more than you look to the opinions of those who were wrestling to discover who He was. Do you see it? It all is beneficial, it all is profitable, it all is inspired, but it does contradict itself in a sense because you're growing in your understanding of who God is.
Does that make sense to you? So that in Matthew 9, this is what Jesus says, and then I'm going to show you the two, the two different ways that you can look at this. But in Matthew 9, verse uh, 11, it says, And when the Pharisees... Uh, I'm sorry, verse 10. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. See, sacrifice was something that was required under the law. Sacrifice was a punishment required under the law for sin. But Jesus said, go and learn what this means. It's what Hosea said in Hosea 6.6. 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So that early on, you know, one presentation of the gospel would, would go something like this. In the beginning, right, God created the heavens and the earth. And because he wanted to have fellowship with those who were made in his image, he creates man in his image and in his likeness, and he sets him in the garden, and the two of them have a face-to-face fellowship. They walk together in the garden in the cool of the day. Right? And then something happens, and mankind becomes deceived by the serpent, and they turn their back on God, and they hide from God. The story tells us that they they put on uh, fig leaves and aprons, and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. So they turned their back upon God. And the way the retributive gospel would go, the one that I was saved on and preached for 20 years, because God is so holy, because he's so just, because he's so pure, he can't look on sin, so God has to turn his back on humanity. And now you have this separation between God and man. And uh, God sends the man outside of the garden. But God is just, but he also loves us very much, right? So what he does is he sends his son. He, be, he, he takes on flesh. God takes on flesh and becomes one of us. <laughs> and he is completely turned towards his father. Jesus completely lives uh, obediently to the will of his father, always being led by the Holy Spirit, always doing the right thing, never got upset with mom or dad, never, um, anyway, never punched one of the neighbor kids. You know what I'm saying? So they had this perfect fellowship. But then one day, Uh, And this was the whole plan. God decides that the way he's going to deal with humanity is he's going to take all the sin of humanity and he's going to place it on his son, Jesus. And when that happens, Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so in that moment, God turns his face from his son. And in that moment, God takes all of his wrath and all of his anger against sin And he throws it down upon Jesus until he dies, right? But then, we're at Easter Sunday, right? So on the third day, he rises up from the dead, right? And now, anybody who puts their faith and trust in Jesus, anybody who will believe that, anybody who will believe that Jesus, that God punished Jesus in their stead, if they'll believe that, they can have fellowship now with God and that fellowship can be restored. But really, it happens like this. 
Because I was taught God's wrath was still abiding on us outside of Christ. That God's white-hot anger was still every day, every day he was angry with the wicked, right? But we had a chance. We could repent. And if we would repent and if we would say the sinner's prayer, we would be turning to God. And if we would do that, then God would put Jesus on us, sort of put us in Christ, right? And put Jesus' perfect track record over us. And then he would turn and he'd be able to relate to us, but only because he's seeing us through the blood of his son. So that Martin Luther, the, the, one of the, the great reformer and founder of the Lutheran denomination, well, he didn't really want to, never mind. Martin Luther. From the Reformation, he's quoted wrongly. He didn't say this, but he's often misquoted as saying that humanity is just a uh, a pile of dung that has been snow-covered in the righteousness of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I still wouldn't want to get hit with that snowball. One, one popular preacher today says that Jesus is the asbestos suit that we wear uh, that, that prevents us from burning up in the white-hot anger of God's wrath. But now, if you don't turn to God, then you and God remain estranged. And when you die, you're punished for all eternity, separated from God and punished for all eternity. Punishment for punishment's sake. For all eternity. And see, as a young man, because of some of the issues, some of the daddy issues that I had and stuff, that made sense to me. And so... Much of my Christian life, I was trying to play the dutiful soldier, the obedient son, whatever. But see, even your good works, I was told, don't amount to anything with God. So really, it doesn't matter what you do, because God can't see you. He just sees you in his son. But what if there's a different way to look at the gospel? What if I told you there's a more ancient way, meaning it's more true to the patristics, the, the early church fathers, and perhaps even a more biblical way of looking at the gospel from a restorative lens rather than a retributive lens of justice. And it would begin very much the same way. God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. And because he wanted fellowship with humanity, he made mankind, male and female, in his image. And he put them in the garden and they walked together in the garden, in the cool of the day, and they had this fellowship. And yes, same story, the serpent comes and deceives Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, and they turn their back on God. But God comes, God, in this, in this version, God does not turn his back on Adam and Eve, because remember, Adam, Adam and Eve hid themselves from the Lord among the trees, right? And God comes and he says, where are you, Adam? What have you done? How can we restore the relationship? Not what have you done so I can punish you, but what have you done so that this relationship might be restored? But instead of wanting that relationship, Adam says, no, it's the woman that you gave to be with me. She's the one that caused the problem. See, we always, I always thought he blamed the woman. It's convenient in marriage. But in reality... In reality, he blamed God. It's the woman that you gave to be with me. So he turns his back on him again. And then their firstborn son, Cain, kills their secondborn, Abel, turning his back on the author of life. And God doesn't do away with Cain. God comes to Cain after he killed Abel and communes with him. And even in an act of mercy, puts a mark upon Cain so that what he did would not be done back to him. Then the Israelites go and 
they wander away from God in Egypt and God sends Moses and God comes to them in Egypt and says, if you'll serve me, if you'll worship me, I'll deliver you from this. And he delivers them out of bondage and he takes them into the wilderness and they turn their back on him and decide that they're going to worship the golden calf. But God does not give up on them. God comes back to them and says, I'll give you a law. I'll give you guidance. I'll give you understanding. I'll help you as a nation. I'll take you into the promised land and make your nation great. And they get into the promised land and it's not very many years after that that they turn their back on God again. But God continues to send them judges. God continues to send them kings and prophets so that every time they would turn their back upon God, God would not turn his back upon them. Oh, and I forgot, this is still the mean God of the Old Testament who after they had worshipped Baal and done all the things that God had told them not to do, and so God sends them. They, they, they go into Babylonian captivity, right? And even while they're in exile, while they're in exile, while they're under judgment, God says, now's the perfect time for me to clothe myself in flesh and come to them when they are so far from me. And God became flesh in the person of Jesus. And so one day he goes and he finds a woman who had been going from relationship to relationship, looking for love, looking for value, looking for worth, looking for dignity, trying to find something that would cleanse that thirst inside of her. And instead of turning his back on her, he sits down with her at a well and he says, if you'll come to me, I'll give you the water of life. There's a man named Zacchaeus who for greed, selfishness, sold out his own countrymen, sold out his own people, and served as a Roman tax collector. And tax collectors in those days in those days would get paid by extracting more money than what the government required. So he's robbing his own countrymen, turning on Israel as despised as a sinner. And Jesus sees him because he climbed in a tree and Jesus says, Come down, I will come and I will eat at your house today. There was a man in the Gadarenes who we don't know what happened to him. We just know he was a bad guy because he was completely demon-possessed. And he was hanging out in the graveyards and he was cutting himself. He was, he was a cutter. He was a self-mutilator and he was hanging out. And, and, and the love of God said, I've got to go all the way across the lake. I've got to go all the way across the lake because nobody in that town's going to accept me. They're going to throw me out anyway. But this man needs my love. And so he sits down and he sets him free and he breaks his chains and he puts clothes on him and he has him in his right mind. And when finally in the ultimate act of rejection, humanity says we can't stand this love and this light from God. And so they take him for political reasons. They take him for religious reasons. They take him because of greed and jealousy and envy. And they they nail Christ to the cross. And even then, he will not turn away, for he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And even though humanity would descend into total death, God would say, love is stronger than death. And even in Sheol or in the grave, you cannot hide from me. And so that it was never a punishment mission, it was always a rescue mission. 
so that so that Christ could go into death and defeat death by death defeat death and when he raised all the dead that were with him raised as well it's in your bible I, what some easter i want to do a, a message on all the others who resurrected on easter sunday because we forget about him his wasn't the only empty tomb go back and read your gospels his wasn't the only empty tomb it says that the dead were raised to life as well and many of them walked through the streets of jerusalem and testified to the resurrection of jesus Because he defeated death. And when he raised, we were raised up with him. So that now, there is no place, let me a second here, there is no place that God is not. Even David said, if I go up to the heights of the heavens, in Psalm 139, if I go up to the heights of the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, Sheol, it's the Hebrew word for hell. If I make my bed in hell, even there you are. So that now the only thing that we understand about God is that God is love. That, that there is a fiery stream of God's love that flows towards humanity in their darkness, in their brokenness, in their pain, and in their hurt. Because his focus is not on trying to punish the sinners. His focus is on trying to heal the sinners. His focus is not on trying to cast away the lost sheep. His focus is on trying to recover the lost sheep. And not for his own sake, but for their sake. So that he can restore to them what has been lost, which is life. And so that he can heal what has been wounded and what has been broken and so that he can mend and reconcile the relationship not just now but in now into eternity and into the ages to come so that everywhere everywhere god is both in the natural and in the spiritual so those who will return who will who will surrender to the love of god for them who will let god love them those who will let God love him, love them, and return love for love, experience his presence. The fire of his presence is something that brings light, something that brings life, something that brings comfort and warmth and peace. But if a human being chooses to stay in a state contrary to God's nature, which would be contrary to their own nature because they were made in the image of God, if they choose to rebel, not only against God, but rebel against themselves. And not return love for love. And not surrender to the love of God and let God love them. Then they experience that love and they experience that fire very differently. The Apostle Paul said it this way. You'll know this, I'm sure. This overturns retributive justice. He says, bless those that curse you. Do good to those who do evil to you. In doing so, you heap coals of fire upon their head. In other words, if you come to me with a meal of reconciliation and I refuse to reconcile, chances are I'll hate you even worse. And what I end up doing is creating my own hell in my own soul. But if my nature changes and you come to me with a meal then now it's something that we can share life together that can be reconciling and can be healing. So we're going to prepare to take communion. So the question becomes, when you come forward, if you come forward, and when you come forward to receive the communion meal, is it a meal that represents for you punitive justice? where the Son of God endured the wrath of God on your behalf so that you could be saved and always 
have in the back of your mind the knowledge God doesn't really see the real you. See, the problem with the old good news, the, the way I used to hear it and the way I used to preach it, the problem, I mean, it served a purpose, but the problem with it was this, that God could never really look at me. He never could really see me. Kind of reminds me of a story in the Bible where there was a father who had two sons. One was favored and one was not. One was a hunter and masculine and hairy. <laughs> it says that, hairy. <laughs> not, didn't make that up. And his father loved him. The other one was a mama's boy. He stayed at home, <laughs> sewed, <laughs> cooked, right? And God had ordained for the younger son to receive the blessing, but father's heart was turned towards the son that he loved. He could only see Esau. He couldn't see Jacob. And so when it came time for Jacob to get the blessing... He had to pretend. His mother told him, if your father's going to bless you, you have to pretend to be Esau. Here, let's put a garment on you. And it, it's, it's incredible to me that Jacob goes into his father Isaac, and Isaac says, ah, it's, it's, it's the voice of Jacob, but the hands of Esau. And I wonder what it was like for Jacob to receive a blessing that was not his own, but it was a blessing because he was wearing the right disguise. So that he begins to leave his home. The next, in the next part of the story, he leaves his home and he runs from his brother Esau. But see, what's really chasing him is who he's pretending to be in order to get the love and affirmation that he needs. Until finally, he wrestles with God. Why is he wrestling with God? You know the story, right? Why is he wrestling with God? Why is he wrestling with the angel? And he tells the angel, I will not let you go until you bless me. Because all that time he's looking for an authentic blessing, not a phony blessing. Are you tracking with me? So what does the angel say when the angel finally pins him? <laughs> Pins you. What is what is... <laughs> What does the angel say to him? What's the first question that comes out the angel's mouth? What is your name? And he doesn't answer, I'm Esau. He says, I'm Jacob. So that finally his authentic self could connect with an authentic blessing. But see, we've been, we've kind of grown up in uh, Isaac's house in the church because we've had a father that our mother, the church, has told us about, but we're afraid that we don't act right or well enough or good enough to get our father's blessing. So we serve in our mama's house doing all the things that we think we need to be doing in order to get dad's blessing, but in the end, we're just not sure. And so what does mom do? Mom does just like Rebecca, and she says, look, he likes the firstborn better than you. And if you want to be blessed, you've got to put on the garment of the firstborn because he can only see you through the blood of Jesus. And so I'm told he doesn't really see me. He only sees Jesus. And so I never feel like I can authentically connect with the blessing of God. And that's why that gospel falls short. But this other says, God sees you. God knows you. Before a word is formed on your tongue, God knows what you're going to say. And in spite of whatever brokenness or pain or hurt or hardship or difficulty that you may have had 
He sees through all of that and he says, I love you totally. I love you unconditionally. I totally and unconditionally accept you and I'm willing to bless you. And the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus is about God in his desperation chasing humanity because he wants to bless them. It is a form of God wrestling with Jacob until finally he pins Jacob. And gives you the opportunity when he asks you what is your name to answer with authenticity. And say this is who I am. And he says I embrace you and I bless you. And now your name shall be called Israel. Because Israel means one who has wrestled with God. And wrestled with man. And wrestled with himself. And has prevailed. So if you ask me, then the good news got even better. So we're going to receive communion this morning again. And please understand that it's God in his love for you. Not his love for his son. Not his love for good behavior. Not his love for righteousness. I mean, come on, have you ever felt like this with God where you knew you had to go out and do something for God and it's like God said, oh, go get that thingamajig? Like, uh, I'm not really sure what God's looking for here. I'm not really sure what God wants from me. And I'm looking at all my opportunities in life, but this looks like a good fit. So let's try this only to bring it to God and then be told by somebody or have some sense in your heart that all that just doesn't measure up. But our father is not like that. Our father is offering us fellowship and healing and communion right where you are turning to you long before you ever thought about turning to him. So I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to pray for the elements, and then is that it? I'm looking for my director. Is that it? Just communion after this? Okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I did my best this morning to deliver your message. I pray that it will be a blessing to each person's life. I pray that it will bring healing. I pray that it will bring reconciliation. I pray that it will bring a form of your restorative justice into our lives. Father, I pray for every person who might be struggling with a broken heart, with a person who might be feeling alienated from you today, that might be feeling alienated from family or from their dreams, wherever the brokenness is in their lives, wherever the scars are in their lives, I thank you for your healing presence right now to pour through them and to pour over them and to bring them healing and to bring them hope and to bring them reconciliation. And Lord, it's appropriate for us as believers to honor this season by taking communion. And so I ask this morning that you would bless the bread that Jesus took on the night that he was betrayed and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And Lord, that you would bless the wine and the grape juice that we have that, that represents the blood that you shed in your love for us. When you took the cup that night and you gave thanks and you blessed it and you said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for the remission of sins. So, Lord, now we do this in remembrance of you. I pray that you'll infuse the elements with your grace, with your real presence, and with your healing power. In the name of Jesus. Amen. We have the elements on both sides. We have real wine, and we also have grape juice. So you can take your pick. They're both labeled. God bless you. Have a wonderful Easter. We'll have some people up here if you would like some prayer. Otherwise, I hope you'll enjoy your family. I hope you'll enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for listening to me. God bless you.